Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM, Provincetown WFMR 91.3 FM, Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. I didn't grow up in Manhattan, but my dad worked in Midtown and there was no more glorious time to visit him than December when the entire city, it seemed, was decked out for the holidays. Besides Besides Macy's and Radio City, we never missed the magnificent Scribner's Bookstore on Fifth Avenue. It was many years later that I associated the name with one of America's most iconic publishing companies, and some years after that, when I ran my own literary press, that I became enthralled with the sometimes glamorous and most times precarious business of publishing itself. Today we're talking about Charles Scribner's Sons, the publishing company whose infamous editor Maxwell Perkins discovered F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, and Thomas Wolfe, and over 150 years has published the likes of Edith Wharton, Winston Churchill, and nowadays Stephen King. Along the way, it bolstered its status in an unpredictable industry with creative side shoots and innovations. My guest is Charles Scribner III, the fifth of the Charleses to work at the legendary publishing house, as well as a distinguished author and art historian. His new book is Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. Charles Scribner, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be chatting with you. And your introduction reminded me the one and only time I ever was invited to be a speaker at a writer's conference was in Provincetown, exactly 40 years ago. Wow. We were still a family company just before the year before, the summer before we became part of Macmillan. Um, so that was uh, so what you could say. We sort of closed out the, <laughs> the, 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 the century plus of family ownership. Um, uh, the one time I went to Provincetown to take part in a writer's conference. So let me ask you, most American publishers back in the 19th century began as byproducts of printing presses or bookstores. The founding Charles Scribner had another idea. He was going to search out American, new American writers at the time. Why was this an innovation? I guess it was an innovation in, in so far as uh, the uh, the publishing companies had a, had more practical uh, origins uh, in the United States. Most of them uh, supported themselves on reprints of English uh, fiction and nonfiction, uh, which were very profitable because w there was no international copyright law. And so the American publishers were really like pirates. I mean, they just took these uh, novels of Dickens or, or Trollope or Thackeray or whatever, and they just, you know, printed um, uh, editions for the millions of Americans over here at the time and didn't have to pay the author one cent or one pence of royalty um, on each copy. And but they came out of if you had a printing plant, you might want to do all these um, these freebie editions, freebie for you. In other words, you didn't have to pay uh, contractual obligations to anybody. You could just have work for your presses, keep them running, and 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 give them more business. Or if you were a bookseller, you could you could go into this sort of reprint publishing in order to uh, have more product to sell in your store. Uh, but my great-great-grandfather 
he didn't have a printing press or a bookstore, and he had the idea that he w- wanted to to start something without the burden of having either. Of course, later on in his life, he had both. He had a bookstore and he had a printing press. press. Um, but that was many, many years later. Um, and he just wanted to originate uh, <laughs> books by Americans. So your grandfather was skipping some generations now, who, I love this story, might have been an artist if his parents hadn't taken his, his, his paints away because they wanted him to be in the publishing business. He hired a friend who turned out to be the most famous editor in American literary history. There were there was actually, according to your book, two different movies in which he was the main character. His name was Maxwell Perkins. Can you tell us about him and why he was such a successful editor? Well, I think he, uh, why he was so famous was because of the authors whom he brought in. Uh, first, Scott Fitzgerald, my his boss, my great-grandfather, he was a uh, Max Perkins w- went to Harvard was about three classes or four cl- I guess four class oh dear God three classes ahead of my grandfather so they were contemporaries and became best friends they had lunch every day um, and but the boss was the great grandfather who was who published Edith Wharton and Henry James and was rather old fashioned in a way uh, Winston Churchill uh, Theodore Roosevelt was his most prolific author uh, besides uh, uh, besides Robert Louis Stevenson. Anyway, um, Perkins did not give up on Mac, on this young writer who'd been uh, hadn't finished Princeton, gone into the army, and was writing it in the army. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, his boss, my great grandfather, turned the draft down, turned the, the manuscript down twice. But Perkins kept kept with the author, kept working on it, and it was eventually published as This Side of Paradise. And it launched Fitzgerald's career. Fitzgerald, in turn, to return the favor, he and Zelda were over in Paris after the Great Gatsby. Where the Great Gatsby, um, at the time the Great Gatsby was published, 1925, 1920, and this was 1926. He introduced, sends a cable to Perkins and says, "There's this young writer. You got to look him up. He, uh, Ernest Hemingway." Now that was the best favor one author ever did another for our company. Uh, he misspelled Hemingway in the cable, but who cares? We got the author, and and then Thomas Wolfe came along. Uh, the two movies about Perkins, one centers on Wolfe, and the more recent one, which was uh, really produced and I guess um, created. Um, by uh, a, a fellow Princetonian, a guy a couple of classes ahead of me, Scott Berg, who's now famous as a biographer. And he wrote his uh, Pulitzer Prize winning biography, first biography on Max Perkins called Editor of Genius. The movie is called Genius. And it came out, what, three years ago? Something like that. Um, and it uh, all the story, it's about, it's about Perkins, Thomas Wolfe, and Wolf's uh, girlfriend, um, and all the stars are foreign. Uh, Perkins is played by Colin Firth. Thomas Wolf is played by Jude Law, and Aline is played by. Um, oh dear God! It's, she's uh, the it's, tall uh, woman who used to be married to Tom Nicole Cruise. Kidman. There Nicole you go. Kidman. <laughs> Together there, we did so it. They're all <laughs> they're all foreign. Uh, so that movie focuses on Thomas Wolf, for whom Perkins really served as a Michelangelo of editors in the sense that he chipped away a lot of the marble of this manuscript. It came in in boxes. 
Uh, he didn't chip away enough, I don't think, but I guess Wolf wasn't about to let him uh, do any more. Um, they're still very long books of Time in the River and Look Homeward Angel. Uh, but the second movie, I really prefer. I think it's an even better movie about Perkins. And who plays Perkins in this movie? Oh, dear. Um, That's all right. I, I was Roddy or- McDowell. Anyway, it's called Cross Creek. And it's about Perkins, this dapper New Englander, going down to you know the the western florida the panhandle area or northern florida where marjorie kenan rawlings lived and wrote the yearling and that is a wonderful movie mary steenbergen plays marjorie kenan rawlings peter coyote plays her husband and i think it's roddy mcdowell who plays max perkins so thomas wolf why uh, he considered um Perkins to be his mentor and almost like a father figure, a confidant, champion, surrogate father. Can you tell us what happened between them that they that they had a breakout and, and that they broke apart? And you tell us at a certain point that um, that Thomas Wolfe even went to another publisher. Yeah, I mean it was uh, Thomas. Absolutely, Thomas Wolfe. Um, and I quoted in the book, um, uh, gives one of the, if not the most over-the-top dedication to his editor in the history of writing and publishing, and basically says, I couldn't have written this book without Max Perkins, and he was the be-all and end-all, and, and as you say, was more than an editor, was kind of a father figure and mentor, and it just was over-the-top but then Wolf was an over-the-top writer. I mean, he my field in art history is Baroque, and he was, <laughs> as a writer, he was Baroque. Um, and uh, having given Perkins this huge credit uh, in the at the beginning of uh, of Time in the River, then all of a sudden he realized, oh my God, the whole world, the literary, the press, the the critics, they're all saying that I couldn't have done this without Max Perkins. Um, and then he felt he had to prove to the world, to the critics and to himself that he could do it without his daddy figure. I mean, maybe this is a classic case of sons rebelling against fathers um, because, uh, uh, because he then left Scribner's. He left Perkins and went to Harper's for his, his final books with the sad irony that when he died very prematurely, um, he had named in his will Max Perkins as his literary executor. So Max Perkins personally had to oversee the publications of the last novels and short stories of Thomas Wolfe at another publishing house. Hmm. How's that for irony? That's irony. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the iconic American publishing company that introduced us to F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, and many, many more. My guest is Charles Scribner III. His new book is Scribner's Five Generations in publishing. So you you tell us that when fit that although Fitzgerald is one of the most famous writers in American literary history, you tell us that at the time of his astonishing young death no one was buying his books. So what happened? How no, it was it w- it was so sad. They were not out of print. The, the the truth is even sadder than being out of print. They were all in print and in stock at our warehouse on West 43rd Street, 
but no one was buying them. And I just discovered in a in a um, rare book dealer's catalog recently uh, the the I guess you could call it almost like the starting gun uh, for the the new race for the uh, the, the race to bestsellerdom of the Great Gatsby, and it actually was a, a novel whose bestsellerdom today it's, it remains our absolute number one bestseller year after year. Sorry, Stephen King, um, uh, uh, and it was launched by the freebie. Uh, armed services paperback edition that was sent to our troops in Europe uh, at the conclusion of the Second World War. So you could really say this book, written in nineteen, uh, published in nineteen twenty-five, really owed its its uh, apotheosis a generation later to a world war because they sent out that, free copies. It, this was like they, that's strange. That's that's like Gillette. That's like the story of Gillette razor blades. They gave, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, that they, did it have a similar? Yes, they gave them to the soldiers going over to Europe in 1917, and when they came back, they were they had to buy the blades. So it's amazing that this book took off as a result of uh, complimentary copies. Well, Matt Brookley, the late Fitzgerald scholar um, and expert, I think did did the math. And the, he had the number of copies, the, a couple of hundred thousand that were sent abroad to the, to the occupying forces in in, um, in Germany after at the end of the war. And I think he did the math about that these books were passed around. Uh, they I think they were sent to officers, and and uh, they were passed around, and they each book probably had um, six six different readers along its life abroad. And so he figured it got, it gained for Fitzgerald a million brand new second generation of readers. And that was the critical mass that sort of uh, gave it a second life. As my dad used to say, that life beyond life to which each, every author aspires. And he did it. Fitzgerald had that second life. The Great Gatsby, and it's been going full, full force ever since. So publishers understand how great book covers influence the sales of their titles. But you tell us that the cover of The Great Gatsby, arguably the most celebrated jacket art in the 20th century American literature, may actually have influenced the author as well. Can you tell us that story? Yes, the artist. Uh, it's an iconic picture. It's on the the paperback today. I put it on the paperback. It had been on the first edition, and the edition that was not selling. It had never been on our book uh, since 1925. Uh, I put it back on in 1979 uh, on a paperback edition, and it's that it's it's a kind of cobalt blue background of a night sky with these luminous uh, female eyes hovering in the sky and a green tear down. There's no face drawn in. It's just the eyes in the sky and a green tear and a mouth, a a red lipstick mouth. And then in the bottom right, there are these uh, carnival lights of, I I suspect, Coney Island, Um, but an amusement park. But the, the, the one in New York would have been Coney Island because in the book, Gatsby actually, oh, Fitzgerald, when he saw the design that that Perkins had commissioned, 
before the book was complete, before the manuscript was written, Fitzgerald was so excited by it, he later wrote to to Perkins, for God's sake, don't give that cover to anybody else. In other words, if my, if my book comes in late, if my manuscript's late, don't go giving that beautiful cover to another person's novel. He says, I've written it into the book. <laughs> and... Um, what did he mean by that? Well, it could be anything from this was the inspiration for the the, the spectacled eyes of Dr. T. J. Eckelberg on the on the billboard um, that that that's such an important symbol in the book. But it could also more literally be uh, a description of. Uh, Daisy. He, at one point, uh, Fitzgerald talks of, at the end, I think, of chapter two, Daisy's disembodied eyes hovering over the cornices of New York City at night hmm. uh, that Nick, Nick Carraway describes this. Uh, so that's another thing. And then it, later in the novel, uh, Gatsby says to Nick Carraway and, and Daisy says, let's all go to Coney Island. Hmm. Let's go to Coney Island. So it's anybody's guess, but it could be all three. And that cover, this is another mind blower. That cover was designed by the brother of the of the band leader, whose name is Xavier Cugat, that some people may actually remember. Yes, he was a Cuban American. The uh, the uh, Francis Cugat, the artist, he did most of his. Uh, he didn't do any other books. Here is this uh, this artist. He does largely scenery uh, for uh, Fairbanks out in uh, Douglas Fairbanks out in Hollywood. He was a set designer, um, and he would do posters. Uh, but he didn't do any other books. Imagine the one book you do that's that's uh, your cover that is for sale. Uh, on it is the Great Gatsby. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's it's unbelievable. I had the picture was the original artwork had been saved for Fitzgerald. He never picked it up, or he left it behind. And when he came to New York from Europe to see Perkins and the and the his Scribner colleagues, uh, my cousin, my father's first cousin, older first cousin who was in charge of a lot of the business side of the company, a man named George Shefflin, who was my godfather, he spotted this beautiful painting in the trash can of the art department. He fetched it out and had it framed, and it was preserved. And then fast forward years later, I, when uh, I took it home, um, uh, he gave it to me, and I took it home, and it hung in our dining room. And then later, I decided it was it was such an after putting it on the book, having it rephotographed and put on the book, uh, I had it. Uh, I donated it to the Princeton University Library, where all the Fitzgerald papers are housed in our publishing archives. I thought they should preserve it. Little did I know at the time I I donated it. I thought, oh, this is nice. It was. It had a very nice appraisal, much more than any other jacket w would be appraised at. It was the price, let's say, of an expensive car. Today, I could build a house for what it's appraised at. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd give it today, <laughs> but I did. I, when I was young, when I was in my 30s, I gave it, and I'm glad I did. Princeton should have it. Um, if you, but let it, me tell it, people it, who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to okay. The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about one of the great family firms in the history of American publishing. My guest is Charles Scribner III. His new book is Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. Um, 
So I had always thought that the culture of blockbuster advances really started to take shape in the 1970s when hardcover publishers expected to make a killing on mass market paperback sales. But you tell us that Winston Churchill was given the equivalent of a million dollars for a biography of his ancestor. Scribner's never made the money back, but it really didn't care. Tell us that story. Oh, I mean, that was the math I did. You know, when you're writing a book like this, um, I was very sensitive to the problem of figures, prices, numbers, because if you say um, $500 and you're talking about Henry James in the late 19th century, $500 was was a very good annual salary back then. Um they have to be translated. It would be like translating, I don't know, rubles into dollars. The the dollars that are talked about then aren't the dollars today. And I so I started, I did the math, and I realized that the, well, Churchill had been signed up to do a multi-volume and I think very successful history of World War One, which is still in print, called The World Crisis. And then he did a wonderful uh, autobiography of his early life because he was he wasn't an old man when he wrote it. Uh, that was assigned reading to me at high school called "My Early Life: A Roving Commission." It's one of the the finest early memoirs uh, in my memory. But then, much to my surprise, uh, he wanted to do a multi-volume biography of his ancestor the first Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, the, the warrior who won the Battle of Blenheim against, uh, against Louis XIV and was given a palace as a, as a prize, Blenheim Palace, and um, where Winston Churchill was born. So, I mean, it was, it was his family story. And I, when I did the math and realized what Scribner's had paid him as an advance for this multi-volume biography of John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, I realized, oh my God, today it would be like paying uh, the author, an English author, a million dollars. It translated into a million dollars. And I thought, well, we didn't earn it back, but it did support him during those years out of office. And thank God he was supported because, you know, without him, I'm not sure the Second World War would have been won by the good guys. Um, uh, So we kept him going. Yeah. When you began your career at Scribner's, you read you read books that came in over the transom without an agent, unsolicited manuscripts, also commonly known as the slush pile. You tell us that within a page or two, you were able to tell if they were worthwhile or not. So for all our listeners who are aspiring writers, tell us what the usual problems are. What do you see that quickly merits a rejection? Oh my God, what a wonderful and impossible question. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, I guess, look, if I'm going to give you a cute answer, a flip answer, but, but, but jesting in earnest, as Hemingway would say, um, I would say you can tell as quickly as a piano tuner can tell if the piano's out of tune. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, if somebody is not a professional writer is not born to be a writer. Uh, the the first page will read off key. It will it won't be. Uh, it'll be awkward. It'll be overwritten. Usually they over describe too many adverbs, too many adjectives. Um, 
uh, who knows? Maybe maybe this generation raised on text messages will uh, will have a better time of it because uh, from the earliest days of sending messages to each other, they've been sending it in kind of Hemingway prose, right? Less is more. Um, um, not a lot of, of, of flowery, uh, descriptive, uh, complex sentences that that are the telltale sign of somebody who's trying to be a great writer, hmm. but is trying too hard. Hmm. Um, your father and Hemingway were good friends, but you you quote him as saying that working with Hemingway was like being strapped in an electric chair. It required constant displ- diplomacy to keep everything smooth. Tell us about their relationship. Well, uh, their relationship really was defined, I think, from day one by the very different relationship Hemingway had with my dad's father, who was Hemingway's contemporary, a few years older, nine years older, um, Charles, the third Charles Scribner. And they were Hemingway, when in his condolence letter uh, uh, to my grandmother, I think, he wrote a beautiful one to both to my grandmother, the widow, and to my dad, who was then in the Navy during the Korean War in Washington. And he described uh, my grandfather as his best friend. And I think he wasn't exaggerating. The reason I think he felt he was so close to my grandfather, um, they they and they drank a lot together and they wrote outrageous letters to each other jesting rough, joking rough, as Hemingway called it. Uh, The reason they had such a close relationship was Hemingway saw my grandfather, his publisher. uh, He he saw him as a publisher by an accident of birth, that he ran the publishing house, but he didn't see him as a literary professional. He wasn't an editor. He wasn't... um, he wasn't a literary type. Hemingway saw my grandfather as a sportsman and, and said in an introduction to the uh, the reissue of A Farewell to Arms, he describes my grandfather, his publisher, as uh, someone who knows a lot about horses, um, uh, some, uh, uh, enough about a publishing company to run it, and surprisingly, something about books. He, he saw him sub- primarily as a fox hunter as a sportsman and equestrian and that put Hemingway at ease he could be he could relax with a publisher who was a fellow sportsman he was very as you know he was very very competitive with other people in his field in the literary field he would not have taken max perkins never made any changes in hemingway the only one who could would, was my grandfather he would listen to him because he didn't it didn't hurt his ego to to have a fellow sportsman make some suggestions huh. so my father when he came along a generation younger his relationship with hemingway was much more uh, formal and deferential, um, and uh, it was a it was a relationship because Hemingway was living in Cuba, almost entirely in letters back and forth. Um, and but Hemingway had a volcanic temper, and my father um, every once in a while uh, witnessed the volcano erupting, um, and had to play it very carefully. That's why he said it was like being strapped in an electric chair. <laughs> but having said that, my father found described Hemingway as an entirely loyal author. 
I mean, he said he was better than Scrooge in terms of of keeping his word and more uh, at the end of A Christmas Carol. Uh, He said Hemingway had written in his condolence letter to him that he never needed to worry about him, that he would be loyal. And he said Hemingway was true to his word, better than his word. Okay, we're going to have to end it there. Fascinating. Oh, no. Well, that's a nice that's a nice positive note on which to end. <laughs> I think it Hemingway is. Hemingway loyalty. Yes. Today we've been talking with Charles Scribner III. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. Scribner's was recently published by the Lions Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the history of American publishing, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.